chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. As we've already said, we're in the greatest book, probably, of all of Scripture, the book of Romans. And chapter 8 is probably the greatest chapter in all the books of the Bible. And then next week, we will be, Lord willing, or two weeks from today, we will be in verse 28, which we didn't read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe one of the best-known verses of Romans chapter 8. But it's important to see, I think, and it's why we spend time walking through Scripture and and don't um, jump around. We like to preach through books because you get the context. You get the whole orbed idea of what the writer is talking about. And particularly that's important here as we're in Romans chapter 8. These two verses that we just read and as we come to verse 28 uh, in a couple of weeks, it's, it's important to see they all flow together. In fact, not just the two verses of today, but all the way back, almost to the beginning of chapter 8. You must understand all of that flow to really understand what we will talk about in a couple of weeks of everything working to good to those who love God. Because all of that, all of that flows out of Paul talking a lot about suffering. We also, as we come through Romans chapter 8, realize that it's full of talk about the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, One God, the the scripture, Scripture clearly says that we have one God, not three gods. One God, the the Lord is one, and yet manifests himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't turn there this morning, but if you have a pen or a pencil or just register it in your mind, Um, sometime go to John chapter 16. And there's a portion of John chapter 16 where all three are talked about as God. And that's the way the scripture is. We don't fully understand it. We can't comprehend it. But it's the revelation of God, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, not one plus one plus one equals three, but one plus one plus one equals one. One God in three person manifests himself And each of those persons, and they are persons of the Godhead, have all of the attributes of the other. It's not one-third of God, one-third of God, one-third of God, but all have the same attributes. Yet, Scripture clearly teaches that they have different roles to play. They have different roles in the Godhead in ways that they play that out to us as people, particularly the Spirit. And so this morning we're talking about particularly the Holy Spirit again, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've been talking about that for several weeks. And clearly the Scripture says 
uh, in verses 9 and 10 that the evidence, there are other evidences, but one of the evidences of a believer is that the Spirit of God dwells in them. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, you, however, are, um, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so one of the things that it clearly teaches is that if we are a believer, a follower of Christ, if we pass from death to life and have hope one day being an heir, a joint heir with Christ, uh, inheriting all that he has for us, the Spirit of God dwells in us. Uh, that Spirit resides in us. And in verse 11 of the text, that Spirit also says, will uh, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he, will, he who raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The reason it's necessary as a believer to have it is because that very spirit is what will raise us one day, these mortal bodies, to immortality. And so one of the things we talked about is the question that comes. If, if, if in fact, that is an evidence... Of, of the spirit uh, of being a Christian, then what evidences do we know? How do we know that the spirit is in us? And we talked about three things in Romans 8 that help us to know that. And the final one is where I want to land this morning as we launch now into this text. And that was this one. If you go down to verse 17, a third way that it talks about knowing we're heirs with Christ and the spirit of God dwells in us because it says this, um, and if children, then heirs, in verse 17, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And one of the things we said, go back to the tapes, I can't repeat all of that, but one of the things we said is, this is an evidence. If we suffer with him, um, is evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And if we suffer with him well, um, and it talks about, we are heir provided we suffer, not because our suffering merits it or somehow accomplishes it. It's his suffering that accomplishes our salvation. But our suffering is evidence. If we suffer well, we suffer the way we should, it gives evidence that the Spirit of God is in us. And then Paul launches into what that suffering is. That's the last week we were together in verse 18, 18 through 25. It describes that suffering. What suffering? And one of the things we said uh, in that text two weeks ago is if, if we suffer with him, provided we suffer him, does that mean we go out and experience persecution? We go out and look for persecution? Because it says we need to suffer with him. So is that the kind of suffering it's talked about? It may. But I don't think we're to go down to the street corner and call it on, beckon it on to us. It's, it's not talking particularly about that kind of suffering, although that could come and we need to suffer well in that. But it's really just talking about the suffering of living in a broken world. It's talking about the things that come into our lives, the pressures that come because this world was subjected to futility in hope. And that we groan under that. We groan under the brokenness of this age and evidence that we suffer well is that we don't cast off our confidence. When it says, provided we suffer with him. In other words, we, we 
understand the age that we live in. We understand that it's broken. And just because brokenness comes into our life, we don't shake our fist at God. We don't say, God, you're not treating me the way you ought, and we continue to do that. There may be a moment where we stutter and it takes our breath away, but ultimately we do not cast off our confidence in God if the Spirit of God dwells in us because of living in a broken age, in an age that has been subjected to futility by God, in a world of sickness and futility and frustration and decay and misery at times, There are wonderful things in life as well, but we cannot deny, no matter how hard we try in our Western world, we can't block it out. It it has been subjected to futility. Brokenness will come into our life. If you're not suffering now, if you haven't suffered much yet, you will one day. It will come. We should expect it because of how God has designed it to be and the futility that has come and been subjected to because of our sin. And so, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised in the sense that it creates anger and bitterness with God to cast off our faith. But we need to learn to groan in the pangs of childbirth. That's what the scripture said. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, again, the Spirit of God in us, Grown inwardly as we await adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We await patiently for that redemption, for that day when all of the brokenness will be gone. All of it. Every drop of it. So, today, now, the text I want to look at is a text that helps us to do that. I think there's a flow to this. He talks about evidence of the Spirit in our lives is that we suffer well. We don't cast off our confidence. We understand we live in a broken world. Uh, We understand it's been subjected to futility. For the believer and believer, we live in it. We groan along with creation that's groaning. But God gives us hope in these verses. Look at these two now. It says the word begins with likewise. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. That should... That should beckon hope for us this morning. If you're struggling in the brokenness of this age, it should give you hope. I hope this text gives you hope this morning. Because in this text, it says the Spirit, the Spirit of God, prays for us in a couple of different ways. And we want to ask questions about that. We want to ask what it looks like. First of all, why pray for us? Why does the Spirit pray for us? person of the Holy Spirit pray for us? Secondly, in what ways does the Spirit pray for us? Those two questions is what this text answers this morning for us. So the first one is why. Why? Why does the Spirit pray for us? Did you wake up this morning being grateful that the Spirit prays for you? And you've gone difficulty? Did you Thank God that he prays for us. Let's look. Three things, three ways, three whys of why he prays. First of all, there are things we don't know we should ask for. That's what the text says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The reason that the Spirit prays 
is because we have times in our lives when we don't know what to pray. We don't know. Now, think about that for a minute. Think, think. There are lots of things we do need to pray. We do know to pray for, don't we? There are lots of things that the Scripture says we should pray for. In fact, it says pray without ceasing. So it's not that we're totally blind to what we ought to pray for. We should pray for sanctification. The, the Bible says that that's the will of God, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. We're to pray because it's the will of God. Anything that's the will of God, we're to pray for. So you could even broaden that out to the commandments of God. If there's a command, we ought to pray for that. If God commands it, if he says to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and being, it's the greatest commandment, we ought to pray that God would help us to do that. That we are to pray, as we talked about to the children in Clubhouse, as our neighbor, as ourself, then we ought to pray, God, make me more loving. Help me to love my neighbor as myself. So there are lots of things that we can pray for with confidence that it's good to pray for, and we know what to pray for. But this is talking about something that we, have to, we don't know how to pray. We don't know which way to pray. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in a little bit. It should produce humility in us. It should produce deep humility in us. One of the things, as, as I have pastored over these 40-some years, is I, I hope I have become more humble in the sense of kind of thinking I know some things, particularly sometimes in ways to pray for people. There, there are times where I realize more and more, I, I don't know what is the best thing. Early on, I probably had some youthful um, confidence I shouldn't have had. But the longer I've dealt with people, the longer I've worked with people in difficult circumstances, certainly there are times I can pray confidently, pray that God would use this in their life to change them. But the specifics of whether this or that, I am much more humble about that and much more careful about that as I pray, and I think we should too, because there are things the Scripture clearly says we don't know. We don't know. Secondly, another reason why he prays for us is uh, our weakness. Look at the text again. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. What weakness? What's the weakness he's talking about? This is why it's important to walk through the text. The weakness is, is verses 18 to 25. That weakness. The weakness described there in that text. The weakness of the sufferings of this present time in this unredeemed body. One of the things that has been wonderful for me as we've walked through Romans is just this appreciation that, that redemption has come, but it is not fully come. Our bodies are not yet redeemed. Our spirits have been made alive if the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, but we still live in these earthen vessels. And God has chosen to keep us in these earthen vessels for a time. One day we will put them off and we'll be released from that weakness that they produce. We've talked about the weakness of how our bodies can be beachheads for sin. And, God, and Satan uses them sometimes as beachheads to launch sin in our lives. 
because they're not fully redeemed. One day that won't happen. They won't be beachheads anymore. They'll be fully redeemed. But here again is the weakness. It talks about weakness. The weakness of living in unredeemed bodies. Redeemed spirits, but unredeemed yet non-resurrected bodies. That's where we live. And so the weakness dwells there. And the suffering comes upon that and affects us there. Again, that's the beachhead where the suffering comes. And that's the beachhead where the groaning comes from again in our lives. The weakness. So we have need of the Holy Spirit to pray for us because of that weakness. Again, um, we'll go on to talk about what he prays. But first see that picture. Be careful, I think, of an over-realized eschatology. I talked about that in my Sunday school class this morning. The now and the not yet of the kingdom. Don't bring too much of the kingdom in too early. Jesus has chosen that we still are in these unredeemed bodies. And so we live in the now and not yet of the kingdom. We live now in weakness. The weakness of that suffering pressing in upon us. Thirdly, Thirdly, the why. This is an amazing statement here in the text. Look at it. It says it plainly. For we do not know to pray for what we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, and and he who searches hearts, what is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. According to the will of God. So, what does that mean? He intercedes, he prays for us, and he prays according to the will of God. Now, think about that a minute. Think about that. We pray sometimes, and, and we don't know for sure if it's the will of God. But anytime the Spirit prays for us, he knows it's the will of God because he is God. Again, it's got to wrap our minds around Trinity, three persons, one God. But when the Spirit prays, He is God. He's fully God. When God prays to God, the Father, He doesn't pray out of the will of God. He prays the will of God for us. He knows the will of God. He's not confused about the will of God. I hope that builds confidence in you that he is praying for you. If the Spirit of God, in fact, dwells in you, the Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God for us. The Father always hears the Spirit. He never turns a deaf ear because the Spirit prays according to the will of the Father. So, those are reasons, three reasons why. Now the question, in what ways? In what ways and how does the Spirit pray for us? In what ways and how? Kind of the same question turned a little differently. In what ways and how? Scripture says, look at verse 23, that um, it talks about groaning there in verse 23. And it also talks about groaning as we look at our text this morning. Last week we talked about groaning. This week we talked about groaning. So whose groaning is it? Whose groaning? Look what it says. 
The Spirit intercedes, himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Is that the groaning of the Spirit? Or is that our groaning? Let me tell you why I think it's our groaning that the Spirit causes to happen in us. The first reason is the Spirit doesn't need to groan. He doesn't need to groan. The groaning part of that is, is living in uncertainty. The Spirit doesn't live in uncertainty. So I don't think it's the Spirit's groaning when it talks about that groaning. It's our groaning. Secondly, the Scripture says in this text that God searches the heart in verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Whose heart? Not the heart of the Spirit. Our heart. God searches our hearts, sees our groanings precipitated by the Spirit within us. And here's the prayers that get prayed in that regard because they're according to the will of God. Thirdly, groaning is a mark of a fallen world. As we looked in verses 18 through 25, it's talking about the groanings that come out of a, of a broken world, of a world that's been subjected to futility. The groanings that we have along with creation to be released. And then it goes down a little farther and talks about the groanings here. I think they're the same groanings. And let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. In, in the text. If, if we didn't go back to this evidence of knowing that the Spirit of God dwells in us, but one of the evidences we talked about is back in verse um, 15 of the Scripture of chapter 8. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, Abba, Father, that, that intimate um, declaration that God is my Father. How does that come? It comes as the Spirit moves us to pray that. Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit in us, prays as we see the cross, as we see the gospel, and we rest in the gospel, we realize God is our Father. You're my Father. You've reconciled me to yourself. Abba, Father, the confirmation of the Spirit in us that we're children of God. And then you go over here now to the groanings. I think it's the same thing that God takes our life and under the weight of suffering and inspires those groanings by the Spirit within us. So the same thing that happens when we cry, Abba, Father, as inspired by the Spirit, happens in our groanings as those groanings are inspired by the Spirit within us. We just don't know. We don't know how to pray. And we groan in that, and the Spirit works in that groaning and groans with us to pray the will of God for us. And so I think it's our groanings. That's the first way in ways in which the Spirit prays for us with groanings, inspired groanings in our hearts. To see more of that, I want, I want to look at the life of Paul. I, mean, I want to look at the example of Paul to kind of give you a picture of, of how that works its way out. How does that, that groaning rise up within us by the Spirit? Paul's life. Let's, let's just take a diversion now and look at the Apostle Paul's life. Paul's desire, if you turn to Philippians, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, listen to Philippians chapter 1. 
I'm going to spend some time here in this particular text showing the life of Paul, showing how I think that groaning works out in the life of a believer and, and what it means, what the Spirit prays for us. What is it that we don't know? Again, we said we know lots of things to pray for, but what is it we don't know? I think Paul experienced it, and I think we see it in the life of Paul. But look, look at Philippians chapter 1. Start here. Paul writes in verse um, 19. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, again, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will be not at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul wants, whether he lives or he dies, to do what? Magnify Christ, that Christ will be honored in his body. That was Paul's goal. Paul's goal in everything he did, whether he ate or drank or whatever he did to live to the glory of God, that Christ might be magnified in his body, that people would see Christ in him, his hope of glory. That was always Paul's desire, no matter what. So keep that in mind. That, that's, that's where Paul came from. Now, diverge a little bit to Paul's life. There was a time in Paul's life when he came to the Lord. He prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh would be removed. You find that in the book of Corinthians. He, he asked that that thorn might be taken away from him. We don't know what it was, but it was severe. We don't know exactly what it was. Commentators don't know exactly what it was. But whatever it was, it was poking and pricking severely into Paul's life. And he asked God to take it away. He asked once. He asked twice. He asked a third time. And the third time, God said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. God didn't take it away. He didn't take it away. Did it change Paul? He's under the burden of this suffering. Did he cast off his faith? No. He just went back to the fact, whether I live or whether I die, whether God takes it away or he doesn't take it away, I want Christ to be magnified in my body. So now... Fast forward a bit. Fast forward from that occasion. Paul had that experience. He came to the Lord. He didn't know what to pray, obviously. He asked God to take it away, but that wasn't God's will. Paul prayed it, but it wasn't God's will. So he would say, I, I didn't know what to pray there. I, I obviously didn't pray according to the will of God because God didn't take it away. God chose to leave it. But again, that's not his highest priority, to know how to pray. His highest priority was to magnify Christ. And God said, we'll do that. That'll continue to happen. Paul continued to let it happen. But you think about now the next time Paul prays. The next time he comes to a place where he needs to pray for something. Learn a lesson from times like that. Creates humility in our lives doesn't mean we don't go back to asking God, but we certainly don't dictate to God of how he has to work. And Paul had all kinds of experiences, all kinds of things that happened to him in his life. 
all kinds of occasions where he didn't know for sure whether he would live or whether he would die. But what he had settled in his life, no matter what, I want Christ to be magnified. I want him to be exalted in my life. Paul learned it as he suffered. For a time in the text, look at here that we read. If you go to verses 21 and 22, we see evidence that for a time he didn't know. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Have you ever been there? Ever been there in your life? I've been there in my life. Some of you are there in your life right now. Don't know what to pray. Do I pray for healing or not? Do I pray for deliverance or not? Paul had that happen again and again. Do I, do I, is God going to deliver me? Do I pray for that? Or is he not going to deliver me? And see, in all of that, in all of that, his chief desire was that Christ would be magnified. And it's in those times where I think we cast ourselves upon the prayers and the intercession of the Holy Spirit. To pray in groanings that he stirs up within us, too deep for words. But one of the things we have confidence is that the Holy Spirit is praying according to the will of God. I cast myself on that and trust him and continue to live. Paul lived, and I think we need to live as well that Christ might be magnified in my body. Whichever way it goes, deliverance or not, healing or not, Christ would be magnified. Christ would be exalted. And the amazing thing about that is the next verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. That's where it's headed. That's where the next verse we will open. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We'll talk about that verse, but don't take it out of the context of where we've been. Don't take it out of the context of suffering that has moved us into it. God works it for our good, and the trust we have in the Holy Spirit is He, he does what He does to magnify Christ. We talked a little bit about the Trinity. I don't want to get off too much in that direction. But this morning, I think it's important to see. I said to you, they all possess all of the Godhead. God the Father is all God. God the Son is all God. God the Holy Spirit is all God. It's not one-third, one-third, one-third. But they do play different roles. They do play different roles. A number of years ago, this was helpful to me to see. I asked the question, why do I know more about the Father and the Son than I do the Spirit? Why? Is it because I just haven't taken enough time? Some of that can be true, but not all of it. I think there's a design in the roles of the three persons of the Godhead for that reason. And this is it, because the role of the Spirit, if you go to John 16, that I'm not going to turn to, the role of John chapter 16 is that the Spirit would push forth the Son. 
That's the role of the Spirit, to continually lift up the Son so that the Son might be magnified. Now, you take that truth, that role of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The confidence we can have is that He always magnifies the Son. And so if our desire in our lives is that Christ would be magnified, we can be confident that he prays according to the will of God. And also, we can be confident in his job description, which is to magnify the Son. We don't have to twist his arm that the Son would be magnified in us. That's his role that the Son would always be lifted up, magnified, exalted. And when those things come together, we have this kind of confidence that the Spirit prays that Christ would be magnified and for our good. They come together. The confidence we can have today, even though you don't know what to pray at times, you come and you don't know what will most magnify Christ. You can be confident that God doesn't leave you alone in that. God doesn't chastise you for that. But rather, he has given you the spirit to dwell within you, to pray for you, so that hopefully your deepest desire can be fulfilled, that Christ would be magnified, whether by life or by death, he would be magnified. We would suffer well. We would suffer well as evidence of the Spirit in our lives who moves us to suffer well and not cast off our confidence, but have our confidence grow deeper, deeper into the love of God and His goodness for us. This morning, we looked at Paul's life. I hope that we also looked at ours. That in your life this morning, you may be in a circumstance, a situation where you don't know how to pray. You don't know what's the best way to pray. First of all, I think we have to settle. Is my desire that Christ would be magnified? And if that is where I live, we can be confident that God will help us. He will help us in the situation. As I went to this text this morning, um, again, maybe it's just because of the years adding on in my life, but whenever there's a text that says, God helps me in my weakness, I want to know what it is. I want to know what that help is. Because as I go along, I recognize that weakness more and more of living in a broken, fallen world in an unredeemed body. I need to know God. I need to know the strength that he promises. And one of the things that he promises is that he prays for us. He prays for us that Christ might be magnified in the life of his people. We're going to close this morning with a song that we sang, the second one. I hope even that song has more meaning to you as we've opened this text. As we sing it now, I pray that the desire of our heart would be, God, help me in this weakness. Help me to magnify you. In good or bad, you would be exalted. Let's stand and sing together. Shall I take from your hand your blessings? 
Yet not welcome any pain Shall I thank you for days of sunshine Yet grumble in days of rain Shall I love you in times of plenty then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest? But when winter winds blow, then doubt. Oh, let your will be done in me. In your love I will. Abide, oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. Are you good only when? I prosper and true only when I'm filled. Are you king only when I'm carefree and God only when I'm well? You are good when I'm poor and you are true when I'm parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. You're still God in the darkest night. Oh, let your will be done in me, in your love. Quiet my restless heart. Quiet my restless heart in you. So quiet my restless heart. Quiet my restless heart. Quiet my restless heart in you. Oh, let your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing. As long 
as you are glorified. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would quiet our restless hearts and quiet them with a text that we were in this today, a text that promises that you, by your Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness, that in fact, your Holy Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us with groanings that reflect the will of God for our lives. And as we experience that, Father, we glorify your Son. Lord, I pray that we would be people who suffer well, who suffer and allow Christ to be magnified in us as we experience it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's peace. Amen.